Hey, keto freaks, this is Carl. Do you or someone you know have trouble focusing? You know what I'm talking about. You sit down to read something, try to figure out your monthly budget, write that novel you've been putting off, or maybe you just can't seem to do one task at a time. Well, you may not know this, but I'm a musician as well as a software developer. Programming is a job that requires focus, long periods of uninterrupted work. It's hard for them and for you. I've created Music to Code By. This is music, yes, but it's specifically and scientifically designed to promote focus. Studies show that when math students were exposed to Baroque music between 60 and 80 beats per minute, they did better with comprehension and testing. So I created more modern music that is neither boring nor distracting, but falls within that tempo range. It's just the right mix. I also made the pieces 25 minutes long. That correlates to research that shows we all get brain fatigue after 20 or so minutes of hard focus. The result is thousands of happy customers. Now, you don't have to be a programmer to reap the benefits of music to code by. It has been known to soothe restless pets, calm fussy babies, and even help autistic kids relax and fall asleep. Listen to some free samples at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. I'm Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, just this year, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In that time, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. And we're going to share the progress of my journey through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for more than two years in ketosis. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid yep. of a little technical detail. Are we, Carl? Nah. No. So we've, do, we've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. Uh, we hope to share some of that research, and where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite the research supporting any claim that we make. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We love to cook and we love to eat. Yeah, we do. So we also share the great food that we can eat on this diet. In every episode, both of us share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. So... Let's start podcast number 13. Can you believe it? Yeah. The Ketone Show. So, Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? Yeah, well, I kind of want to apologize for letting Mark Miller on to talk about his junk. <laughs> but, but as for the science, I don't think we got anything wrong. That's good. So just to review, what is a ketogenic diet? Well, we restrict carbohydrates to less than 20 grams a day. That's right. We only eat enough protein to maintain our muscle mass, mm -hmm. and everything else comes from fat, either on our plate or 
that Krispy Kreme that we ate a decade ago. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, Carl, how are we going? How are you going this week? You know, I've sort of been on a plateau for a couple of weeks, and mm-hmm. I've been traveling a lot, and uh, I, I, I think I'm chalking it up to alcohol, actually. Really? Be- yeah, I've been eating one meal a day, but you know, I've been having a couple glasses of wine with that meal and then, you know, maybe a bourbon or two afterwards. And so I really haven't gained and I haven't lost, but I'll tell you what, I feel great. I'm still in ketosis. I know I am because my blood sugar is low. Yeah. But I think other people have said this and it's definitely true that, you know, if you want to lose fat, you probably should knock off the alcohol. So Yeah. Yeah, it's it's certainly something that you want to I mean, I certainly intend to integrate into my lifestyle. Uh, it's not something I won't ever have again. But, yeah, I'm thinking the same. I, I, I've i actually gone backward a little bit for the past month or so. And so, uh, yeah, I'm going to try and, and uh, remove alcohol. So the past couple of times we've done this, I've had a drink ever since the alcohol show. Well, tonight, yeah. I'm, tonight I'm totally sober, so we'll see if I'm any less funny when I'm sober. Oh, that's great. Well, I find that I can have one, maybe two glasses of wine with and after dinner and still lose a pound a day, which is really good, actually. But, you know, if I you know have three, four glasses of wine and then a couple of bourbons, you know, I'll probably I could actually gain a pound or two. So I really got to just watch that. And I would advise other people to do the same. Yeah, you're in the middle of conference season too, so that's going to be throwing a few curveballs at you. But I'll tell you what, I'm happy just to maintain my my 45 pounds. Yeah, that's outstanding. <laughs> I'm really happy. I mean, if this was any other time, if I wasn't fat adapted, I'd probably be gaining 15, 20 pounds in, in the conference circuit, you know? Sure. Yeah. How about you? How are you doing? So I've had, uh, as I mentioned, I've gone backwards a little bit over the past month or so. Uh, it's been ah, hard. getting a little cocky, are um, you? I am a bit, I think. <laughs> yeah. What what really happens is big guys like us can put on or or take off three or four kilos a day just by looking at a glass of water. So yeah. you know, so so the actual scale number is not really as diagnostic as the average or your rolling average of, uh, of uh, scale sessions. And so mm. um, really what I should be doing is I should be uh, writing down every scale measurement that I take and just not looking at it and then putting it in a spreadsheet and doing a rolling average. Right. But what, I'm generally, what I've generally noticed is over the past month or two, I've had higher highs and higher lows. So ah. that three or four kilo range is inching up just about. It's probably gone up about two kilos in the past month or so. I see. And there's a couple of other uh, uh, worrying um, diagnostics that I've noticed as well. I'm getting a bit of um, uh, joint soreness in my fingers, sort of like a gout kind of soreness oh. and slight lower back pain. And a return of hypertension. So my blood pressure has gone from 120 over 75, which is where it was, to 130 over 85, which is high for me. So all those four things may be caused by the same symptoms. So uh, which could be urates, you know, um, uh, causing gout and causing kidney issues. So could that be too much protein? Uh, it, it's probably something genetic. It's probably uh, it's probably not. Um, uh, it could be purines from from meat, but uh, it's more likely to be something genetic. But uh, I'm getting now. A- why do you say genetic? And when I hear people say it's probably genetic, that's sort of like 
I have no idea. Yeah, I, you know, I have no that's idea. That's sort of the catch-all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> certainly insulin, high levels of insulin causes a lot of these issues, uh, hypertension, mm. gout. High levels of insulin cause high levels of uric acid, and then the, cri- uh. the crystals of u- uric acid condensing into or crystallizing in your joints uh, are what yeah. cause the inflammation because really you're talking about little shards of uh, – of assault, yeah, you know that's 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 going to gum up your joints, lubrication, painful, yeah. So, um, and it could be that my lower back pain could be kidney stones. That's one thing that uh, a lot of type two diabetics have uh, kidney stones, and so um, I'm I did I did a test uh, last Friday, I did blood test, and part of that was a urinalysis, and they're going to test for uric acid in my urine. So right. that's probably the best. Uh, guideline. So I'll let you know when I get back the results from that. Yeah, I'd really like to know. And you know, these setbacks can be very, very helpful to people when we sort of find out what's causing them and and figure out how to get around them. My strategy is going to be in case it's a diet issue, I'm going back to my food diary. So at least I know what I've eaten. So I'm going to put everything into my fitness pal, which is the online food diary that I used for the first 18 months of my weight loss. And Mm -hmm. um, it's really only for the past six months or so that I haven't been using it. So I'm going to go back to using that sort of uh, for every morsel of food that I have. And um, maybe what I think I'm eating is not what I'm actually eating. So that's that's another thing. We, we, we tend to fool ourselves, you know. Yeah, we really do. I know exactly what you mean there. Well, uh, if you don't know, we have started a Facebook group called Two Keto Dudes. Yes. And you can search for it and join. We are not elite. Uh, we th- I think we have about 72 members right now, yeah. which is pretty good and anybody who listens who wants to join you can get some extra support from from Richard and I and all of our friends on this group just uh, request access that's right we've got a lot of people who've uh, been doing keto for for you know up to two years uh, like I have we've got people sharing recipes we've got people sharing uh, exercises that have done mm. um, and experience with how their body reacts as they're going through the keto adaptation process, how their body behaves differently under exercise load, which is fascinating. So uh, I think we can go. You can go to the Facebook group if you go to fb.2keto.com. Well, that brings us to mail. mail. We're justified and we don't need no mail. 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 All right. This is a message that was left on our Facebook page by Teresa. Yes. And she says, anybody who has hit the two-month mark, are you no longer spilling ketones in your urine? I've been plateaued for almost a month. Broke it two days ago. Nice. In the last two days, I'm only testing slight ketones in my urine, Ah. but my body fat percentage has dropped from 52 to 48. It's been over six weeks on almost no carbs at all, just lettuce and spinach, meat, eggs, and fat. Nice. Did I break it? (laughs) I've never had any of this happen before. For those of us who have lost the same 30 pounds 10 times. Oh, yeah, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) When the indicator of ketones stops, the panic sets in. Yes, it worked for all these other people. Yes, I know the science is sound, but nothing else has worked, really. So is this failing me, too? So glad I bought the scale that measures body fat. Yeah, that's a pretty normal part of the adaptation, Teresa. It's a good thing. It means you've adapted. Uh, but since this is the keto show, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into ketones, and then I'll get back to uh, a deeper response to your question. Which will probably be self-evident as we have this discussion. So, yeah. so listen up. 
Uh, and just one more reminder, if you have questions or you have suggestions about any topic you want us to talk about or you just want to send us an email, go ahead and do that. It's dudes at 2ketodudes.com. Also, give us a review on iTunes. That makes everybody happy. All right, Richard, let's talk ketones. So what is a ketone anyway? It's a chemical, Carl. It's a chemical that our our brain and all of our cells of our body can use for energy just like they use glucose or fat uh, or protein. Okay, and it's a byproduct of burning fats, right? That's right, yeah. In fact, there's, uh, there's three different chemicals, three different uh, ketone bodies, uh, okay. w- which are all created uh, in the process of burning fat. So it's it's really a partial. You could think of it as a partially burned fat, but you can also eat ketones. We'll talk a little bit about exogenous ketones later on. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people worry about ketones because, especially if they've um, if they're a type one diabetic or they've gone through diabetic education or they they're a doctor that's managing people on uh, on uh, who are managing type one diabetes. Um, because of the phrase ke- diabetic ketoacidosis, I'm sure you've heard that before. Yeah, that's so many ketones in your blood that it's actually toxic for you. Yes, that's right. There are different ranges, different amounts of uh, ketones that you can have in your blood. Most people in mild ketosis, maybe you haven't eaten since uh, since dinner time. You go to sleep, and when you wake up in the morning, you're in mild ketosis. Right. You're making be- between 0.2 and 0.5 millimoles per liter of of ketones. Okay. Uh, if you restrict carbohydrates and you go through the process of uh, of keto a- adaptation, you go into a stage called nutritional ketosis, and that's really 0.5 to 3.0 millimoles per liter of, of ketones. Personally, I'm between 0.4 and, and 0.8. So I really, I really, I'm mostly in nutritional ketosis, but every now and then I'll just dip a little bit out of it. The longer that you're in ketosis, um, the more your body adapts to making only the amount that it needs. And so that's why right. generally you get low levels. But if, when you first start nutritional ketosis, you, you'll be in the range of 0.5 to, to 3.0. If you're a glucose burner and you do some exercise and you burn through all of your glycogen stores, you'll be in what's called a post-exercise ketosis, which is... Which is still in the same range, right? Pretty much, yeah. It's pretty much in the same range as the nutritional ketosis. Now, the next level really is starvation ketosis, and that's when you... you you have nothing to eat for several weeks and you go into the range of 3.0 to 6.0 um, millimoles per liter. And then diabetic ketoacidosis is up between 15 and 25 millimoles per liter. So it's really an order of magnitude higher. Now, we should also be clear that when we say, when we're talking about millimoles per liter, this is in the blood, not in the urine. That's right. Yeah. That is exactly right. And so a lot of people get hung up on these keto sticks and think that that's a measure of ketones in your body, but it's actually what's left over after the ketones that are in your blood get used. Yeah, that's that's really how, how Teresa was measuring ketones and failing to see any. So we'll talk about that. And in most a people do, right? Yeah. Pretty much. So uh, all of us are pretty much in ketosis at some point. As I mentioned, when you wake up, if you didn't have a carby meal close to bedtime, you've been running on ketones for several hours. And this Uh, is one of the reasons why intermittent fasting works so well is because you essentially go from, you know, glycogen, glucose burning, if you are glucose burning, to ketosis the next morning to stronger and stronger ketosis and your ketones keep going up. And after a couple of days, um, only after like three days, your metabolism starts to slow down. Yeah. But for those three days, man, it's you're like just being like, on octane, isn't it? 
Oh yeah. Everybody I've spoken to, I mean, there's a there's a broad range of people and and physiognomies and and just about everybody has had the same experience with fasting. It's remarkable. So you have this mild ketosis in the morning after you don't eat. So Yeah. And, and uh, the other thing is that there are lots of other times where we go into ketosis. For example, the metabolism of a human newborn is ketotic. They have it levels in the two to three millimoles per liter range. Interesting. Yeah. And, and uh, Kyle showed that the, the newborn human brain consumes 60 to 70% of its total metabolism at birth, and nearly half of that is via one of these ketones called beta-hydroxybutyrate. So, um, wow. So that means that we are all in ketosis when we are born. We, pretty this much. This is our natural state. And this is a fundamental shift that people need to make is that, you know, the ketogenic diet isn't some crazy, dangerous, you know, fad. It's the original metabolic state. It is. It's the one we come out of the womb with. And uh, the the nature of human milk in the early days, it's called colostrum in the early days. Right. It has no lactose in it. It has no milk sugars in it. Yeah, it's all fat. Ketones are a very efficient way of fueling the brain. Yeah. They're also very we, – we know that they're an efficient way of fueling the heart as well. So, mm-hmm. um, And most muscles uh, behave more efficiently when, when fueled on ketones than, than on glucose or fat. So it's a highly advantaged uh, fuel source. Yeah. So what else do we know about ketones? Well, we know that they're pretty healthy to the lining of blood vessels, and uh, Jeff Volek showed that. Um, he showed that the uh, the lining of the blood vessels works more efficiently when fed ketones, and it, in fact, it, it unwinds some of the damage that is done by high levels of insulin. We all know that high levels of insulin happen when you have a high-carbohydrate diet, and most of us have type 2 diabetes and are used to producing a lot of insulin and doing ourselves a lot of damage in our blood vessels. And so hmm. this is this is why it's a very useful thing for us to do because it unwinds a lot of the damage, uh, a lot of the heart disease damage that we've done to our blood vessels. So I know that there's a link between uh, high levels of blood glucose and perhaps even insulin, I'm not sure which, and inflammation, which we talk about. And, and the first thing that people say when they go keto is, you know, I, I just seem to be feel better. Like I don't feel bloated. I don't feel inflamed. Uh, there's a disadvantage in having high levels of insulin. There's a disadvantage of having high levels of glucose. You have uh, uh, advanced glycation end products when you have a high levels of glucose in, in your blood. And insulin specifically damages the endothelial lining of the of the blood vessels. And we know that from the dog studies, you know, putting a, putting insulin to one leg of a dog, you'll, it'll become uh, atherogenic. Right. So we know that the, the insulin and, uh, side of things is, is very dangerous. But the interesting stuff about this research is that Jeff Ollick was able to show that the process of giving, of, of having high levels of ke- uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate specifically, this is one of these ketones, high levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood was able to improve the functioning of the blood vessels and how they how they dilated and and how they contracted and 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 push blood. Along. So was it the presence of beta hydroxybutyrate, or as much was it the lack of insulin and glucose? Yeah, he was able to show it was the presence of beta hydroxybutyrate. Wow. So so this is so so not only are we not only are we getting rid of the bad stuff, that we're we're also adding good stuff into our blood vessels. We're healing it certainly for heart disease. Yeah. So they have healing properties. These ketones definitely. What about the safety of ketones? 
Yeah, so we, we spoke about diabetic ketoacidosis. That's a very dangerous uh, scenario. That's where the body really gets into a, a fatal cycle of producing way, way too much ketones mm. because um, this is specifically for somebody who's unable to make insulin. Mm. For example, a type 1 diabetic, if they're unable to make insulin, they're unable to put basically put the foot on the brake of the ketone making process and so it goes out of control and it ends up like tenfold uh, you know between 15 and 25 millimoles per liter uh-huh. whereas uh, you know most people most people are unable to get above three right um, and I, I even if I fast for three days I'm a, unable to get above one ah. so that's that's just a sign of how long I've been doing it and how efficiently my body my body now knows the other thing that's interesting is the amount of ketones in your blood is the amount that you are not using. <laughs> you know what Wait I mean? Minute. So the amount in your blood is what's on its way to being used, right? Yes. It's a very interesting dynamic here because mm. your brain and your cells, when you're fat adapted, use these ketones. So there always has to be some in the blood because it's en route to the brain, en route to the muscles and that's all right. of that. Yeah. But uh, I imagine that if there were no ketones, there would be a problem. Yeah, well, you need a minimal amount for, for all of the sinks of ketones, the, uh, to, to like the brain and, and uh, it, pretty much all cells will use ketones. And one thing that you said earlier was really, really interesting, which is your body gets more efficient at producing just the right amount of ketones to keep this flow going, not too many yeah. and not too few. And this is why, you know, the, you find extra ketones in the urine, that's right. right. This is the, this is the kidney doing its job of spilling the spilling the excess ketones. Right, and so it's funny that when you're when you first start a ketogenic diet, you have a lot more ketones in your urine because your body still doesn't know quite what to do with them yet. Right. Yeah. Well, that, see, this was this is fundamental to Teresa's questions. So I, I, let's actually go into a little bit more detail about her particular question because. Uh, so she she said that she's no longer spilling ketones in her urine after two months. Right. Yeah. So she's asking, does that mean that she's out, am I out of ketosis? Right. And, yeah, so what's actually happening is that when you first start restricting carbohydrates, you're not very efficient. So you're, you're predominantly a glucose burner mm-hmm. and you cut out all carbohydrates in your diet. Mm. At that particular stage, you're not particularly efficient at making ketones, so your body tries to make a lot of them. But all ketones aren't created equal, are they? There are, there's more than one type, and we've already talked about beta-hydroxybutyrate, but what are the other types of ketones? Yeah, so beta-hydroxybutyrate is the best kind. It's the one with the most energy. It's the one that's going to burn and produce the most energy for us. So, okay. um, But there's three actual kinds. There's in the process of burning fats, of breaking down fats so that they can be turned into energy, we make the first ketone, which is called acetoacetate. The, the process of burning fat is a series of uh, chemical uh, equations. Mm. And the next one in the step turns out acetoacetate into beta-hydroxybutyrate. Oh. So they're, they're really stage two and stage three in the process of burning fats. So if you stop the reaction on two, you're going to end up with spilling acetoacetate. If you stop the process on reaction number three, you're going to end up spilling beta-hydroxybutyrate. And the third ketone is actually one that's made from acetoacetate. It just will spontaneously degrade into something called acetone. You'll know that people say, oh, look, I, I get funky breath on ketosis. Right. It, you know, it smells like my breath smells like nail polish remover. I call it dragon breath because it dragon breath. smells <laughs> like you've been dragging your tongue across something nasty. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is actually acetone. It's a volatile that that is produced 
spontaneously from acetoacetate and it uh, it's volatile so it'll it'll outgas from your pores and from your from your mouth so you're saying if you smell funky that's probably a better indication that your ketosis is working properly that that is another indication that certainly is true the interesting thing is that we have different diagnostics that detect different ketones so a pea stick detects the first one acetoacetate that's it that's it. That's all it detects. So once you stop making acetoacetate, the pea stick is useless. Got it. And that's why Teresa was really concerned because she thought she had no more ketones going around her body. But but what's happening is that once she becomes more efficient, she makes the better quality of ketones, which is the beta-hydroxybutyrate. So she turns all that acetoacetate into beta-hydroxybutyrate. Yeah. And so there's none of the none of the precursor. There's another way of diagnosing how many ketones you've got. You've got one of these, a, a ketonics. Yeah, breath uh, analyzer. Yeah. So what it is basically a gas uh, detector for acetone. Ah. And so it's detecting that on your breath. Yep. So once you become efficient at producing ketones, you make you predominantly fully complete this the the reaction all the way through to beta hydroxybutyrate, and then that gets spilled, and that can be detected through a blood glucometer, uh, certain blood glucometers. So the one that I have, which is the Abbott uh, Freestyle Optum Neo, uh, has two different kinds of strips: one very cheap strip that does glucose, and one very expensive strip that can do ketones. That's why I, I don't do a lot of ketone testing. Okay. Um, and that detects the presence of beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood. And so that's good. Now, if you have beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood, still, if that level is low, that could just mean that your your body is utilizing all of the, you know, more yeah. efficiently. You're efficiently adapted to your way of life, pretty much. So really, does it make sense to <laughs> obsess over really. these ketone numbers? In, <laughs> no. No. No, it's it's more. I think it's more like the pea sticks. When you first start out, it's people get a little bit panicky about oh, yeah. is this ketones working? It's chemicals, and I I didn't do well at chemistry at school, so <laughs> you know I'm a little bit panicky about all this. But I know if I pee on a thing and it turns purple, that means it's working, and when it doesn't turn purple, it's not working. Yeah, and the I think it's more like a show and tell thing. It's like. Explaining to your family, see, I'm not in diabetic ketoacidosis. I'm just normal sort of nutritional ketosis. But So again, the pea sticks are good for your peace of mind to know that you're starting the process. But after, like, I, I, I threw them away after I gave them to somebody else. Yeah. yeah. Pass them on to somebody who's just starting out. I, I think that the uh, the pea sticks have limited use. Remember, it's, it's just detecting how many ketones your kidneys are pulling out and putting into urine, which they only do when you get over a certain level of ketones. And so why why do these things exist? Were they for type 1 diabetics? Yeah, they're, they're for type 1 diabetics for whom uh, having uh, having ketones is a dangerous thing. It means that they haven't had their insulin. And, you know, you, you see all these movie plots where somebody is a diabetic and if they don't get their insulin, they'll die. This is how it happens. And yeah. type 1 diabetics are those for whom it happens. Type 2 diabetics, if they have type 2 diabetes for long enough and do enough damage to their pancreas, stop being able to produce any insulin at all, and then they have the same problem. But a type 2 diabetic who's gone on for long enough may as well be a type 1 diabetic in that regard. Wow, that's a, that's really scary. It's sobering, isn't it? So so you've got to remember that these keto sticks were made for type 1 diabetics, and uh, they're calibrated for a much higher range. And so if where we're at, you know, the kind of amount of ketones that we're trying to detect they they really have limited use. So I, yeah. I would I would suggest not worrying too much about it. If you are 
have, if you're eating less than 50 grams of carbohydrates a day and you've been doing it for more than a couple of weeks, you're producing ketones. Yeah, yeah. And you probably feel, you probably feel great. Probably do, and your breath is probably nasty. I keep a, <laughs> uh, I keep a little bin of uh, sugar-free breath mints in my coat pocket at all times, yeah. and I, I pop those all the time. It's a small price to pay. Yeah, it sure is. And, you know, it's peppermint. Who can argue yeah. with that? So <laughs> let's talk about epilepsy because the ketogenic diet was originally developed, if I'm not mistaken, for treating epilepsy. Yeah, it was. It was actually, we've known about it since Roman times. We've known about epilepsy. The Caesar had epilepsy mm. historically. So, um, and there were, there were documented cases in Roman times of, of, People who were epileptics who were shut in a room and prevented from eating, and after a couple of hours, their seizures subsided, and they were able to go quite well as long as they didn't eat. Of course, that's not a, an acceptable long-term strategy. Sure. But, uh, uh, so the Romans certainly used it. We initially we had no drugs for ep- treating epilepsy, and so everybody was was given a, a ketogenic diet. Uh, and then eventually we developed drugs to try and reduce seizures and only for those children, and it's mostly children who have this problem, for those those children for whom the drugs didn't work, they'd put on ketosis. And it was, it was a different diet to what we have now. You hear people say, oh, look, the medical literature says that a ketogenic diet is impossible to stay on for the long term. Yeah. Well, that's rubbish. I've been on it for totally. two years. I've, I, I'm loving it. Totally um, the yes. different, the Yeah, absolutely. The difference is that this... This medical ketogenic diet is, uh, is much higher in fat and there's almost no protein and absolutely no carbohydrates. And so it's a very, very strict form oh, of the diet. I see. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how ketones are made. Now, I know that when insulin is down and sugar is down, your liver creates new sugar and that's what gluconeogenesis means genesis yeah. creating neo new and gluco glucose so it creates just enough glucose to to feed whatever needs glucose but just enough yeah. right that's right so now when insulin is low there's another thing called glucagon that is high and when one is high the other is low they have an inverse relationship to each other right that's exactly right. When your blood sugar goes high, you create your pancreas creates insulin. When your blood sugar goes low, your pancreas creates less insulin, and a low level of insulin causes the pancreas to create higher levels of glucagon. So they they they, they counteract to each other. And the pancreas creates both of these hormones. It does. It's extremely important to the process of managing the glucose in the body. The level of glucose in the body is a very critical um, metric for how well the body is running. I wonder if there wasn't any sugar, if we would even have a pancreas. Yes, that's a very good question. I think we need it because uh, the process of... It's a very ancient mechanism, the insulin sure. mechanism. is a very ancient mechanism. It's essentially how f- plants photosynthesize, turn energy from the s- solar energy into chemical energy. And mm. so that chemical energy, we'd have, to f- we'd have to have some mechanism for managing that. And we wouldn't want it to go too, we wouldn't want those levels to go too high in the body because it's a very potent thing that causes advanced glycation end products and what have you and, yeah. and sticks to blood and does all sorts of nasty things that we don't want. So we want to try and tamp that down. It's a little miracle organ, isn't it? It's incredible. I didn't know what a pancreas was until I got diabetes. Yeah. 
So gluconeogenesis gets triggered by glucagon, which is when insulin and sugar are low. Glucagon goes high and your your liver and, in fact, the cortex of your kidney, these are the two areas that are able to make brand new glucose. They'll respond to glucagon going high by creating new new glucose. And the interesting thing is that the gluconeogenesis process steals a chemical from the mitochondria in the liver and kidneys. And, and the mitochondria are these little guys that exist around the periphery of cells in every cell in your body, right? Yeah, they're, they're, part, they're an organelle of the cell, which is, which is responsible for uh, producing energy. It's responsible for turning uh, acetyl-CoA, which is a byproduct of glucose or, or fatty acids, turning that into ATP, which is, a, is how we, we store energy. So, yeah. um, it, and it's, it's a fascinating story. Uh, we'll go into it some other time. We'll do a show entirely on mitochondria. Great. Um, because that's a fascinating story. How we got them, how, how, um, multicellular life got the mitochondria is fascinating. It involves cannibalism. But let's, oh, no. Let's leave that as a spoiler. <laughs> oh, jeez. No, let's say, let's leave that as a teaser. I can't wait for the movie. <laughs> so, Gluconeogenesis, the interesting thing is it the process of gluconeogenesis steals this oxaloacetate, uh, which is a metabolite that's part of the process of in the mitochondria of converting glucose and fat into, into energy. Okay. So it basically stops the process halfway through. Uh, very soon the cells realize that this, and instead of um, trying to push more and more fatty acids, because that's what you're burning when you're in ketosis, instead of pushing more and more fatty acids into the cell, it says, right, let's partly metabolize these into something called ketone body. And we can use that. We can pass that out into the blood and the rest of the body can, if there are any other cells that aren't compromised by gluconeogenesis, then they can look after that. And so, so the process of making glucose causes our liver cells to spill ketones, which, and both awesome. of those are good things. Yeah. And you never get to make glucose unless there's a lack of glucose. That's right. So it all works. It all works functionally. It all works very well. To and and the body will, uh, the brain will initially use about twenty five percent of its energy from ketones, and that's in the first couple of days. And then after a while, part of the process of keto adaptation is that the blood brain barrier, which is between our blood supply and our brain's blood supply, mm. upregulates the ketone. Transports and so what it means is it's able to get more ketones across into the into the brain, and the brain ends up running about seventy five percent on ketones. So and when you become more adapted, you will find less and less in your pee. Yes, that's right. That's right. So Teresa can take a victory lap here. I think take a victory lap. I think <laughs> she. I think she's doing awesome. That's so great. Well, that's the end of the discussion on ketones. That must mean it's time for. Recipes. Recipes. Could you save your due for a little? Recipes. Recipes. Recipe. <laughs> All right, you go first today, Richard. What do you got? I've I've actually got a recipe that I I just made today, literally today. And my I entire, can smell it from here, by the way. And you're my entire all the house smells of bacon, and I have very attentive dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this recipe is a ham hock terrine. And what is a terrine anyway? A, a terrine is where you press meat uh, 
under a weight. Ah. You, you basically get a, a tub and you put a whole bunch of meat and other things into it and you wrap it with bacon or prosciutto and then you put weights on top of it. You put it in the fridge for a couple of days. And so then- it's like a keto panini. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of a panini. We're going to be we're going to be doing it from raw materials, which is awesome. So spam would be a terrine. Spam is a kind. Of, spam is literally a canned terrine. So okay. I'm going to actually going to use ham hocks, and a ham hock Whoa. is that's the shin area of a pig's hind leg. Awesome. Um, and uh, they're usually very cheap because nobody wants them because they're mostly skin and, and uh, ligaments and tendons and other nasty stuff. But there is a little bit of meat in there, a little bit of uh, sort of uh, calf meat in there. Mm. Um, but it's not the nicest tasting meat. You certainly can't take a ham a ham hock and uh, you really have to boil it for, for hours to, well, to turn it into edible meat. Well, the classic application of ham hocks is in pea soup, right? Because yeah. you just let the gel come out of the bone and the little pieces of meat fleck off into the soup. Nice. Yes. Delicious. Yeah. And of course, of course, legumes like to be cooked for a long time too to get uh, more, right. more, more bioavailable and what have you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to slow cook the ham hock. I'm yeah. going to put a couple of ham hocks in a big in a slow cooker. The one that I just did, I ended up doing it. I ended up cooking it for about ten hours. <laughs> <laughs> but you really, you really only need about four hours to do it. Okay. Um, we're going to take two smoked ham hocks. Uh, we're going to take uh, a couple of small brown onions. We're going to chop those up. We're going to get one stalk of celery, and we're going to get a medium sized chopped carrot. And so we're going to put all of that into a slow cooker with uh, a couple of sprigs of uh, thyme and some bay leaves, mm-hmm. and we're going to cover it with uh, with a liquid. And now I used old chicken stock that had gone off in the fridge. Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's a great way of recycling uh, stock. You know, you could I could probably use that stock, but it really it just started to whiff a little bit, and so um, putting <laughs> putting it into into this. What it's going to do is it's going to recycle chicken stock that was on its last legs and turn it into bacon stock, which is oh, awesome. Gelatinous so good. jelly bacon stock. Oh, it is oh. outstanding. And, you know, it's going to make your whole house smell bacony. So we basically put this uh, slow cooker on for, four, uh, in my recipe, I say four to six hours. As I say today, I went for a bike ride, went for a 60K bike ride and uh, and forgot I'd put my, pressure, my uh, slow cooker on. So... Um, I got to it about 10 hours later. And so what you do is you pull the meat out and you pull it off the bone and you discard the – you put the skin and the fat back into the stock and you keep it keep it going for – you can right. keep, keep it going for another day and, and re- reduce down as much as you can. Um, so, so you've got this meat that you've taken out that's hot and you let it cool just a little bit and then you mix it up with some – with two bunches of parsley, about a cup of parsley – and uh, in fact, I get the stalks of the parsley and put it into the into the stock in the first place. So I should probably sure. should have mentioned that. Um, so I get uh, two, I get a cup of parsley and about two fifty grams, about a cup of butter, and about six teaspoons of seeded mustard, and this pork ham that you've hot ham that you've pulled off. Yeah. So you basically so and now because it's still hot and because it's just come out of the stock that's very gelatinous. This meat has a lot of gelatin in it. So when you take this meat and the butter, and the butter is basically going to surround all of the meat and all of the parsley, and you're going to end up with layers of this gelatinous meat and parsley, and you're going to put a weight on them and you're going to press them tight. You're basically going to end up with a loaf of meat. 
Wow. And it is awesome. That sounds great. So the method of, of, of actually uh, making the making, I, I, I go into detail on my website, but basically you, you put prosciutto into a terrine mold, which is like a little tub. Uh, you, you wrap the outside with the prosciutto, you chuck this meat mixture in, you fold the prosciutto back over the top so it's like a little envelope of prosciutto around this gelatinous meat and then you put some, some weights on top of it and put it in the fridge for a couple of days and when it comes out, it's solid and it's delicious. <laughs> Absolutely and you just delicious. slice it and eat it with just, like a sticks. It just, it just. I, I we actually sometimes have it with just a bit of salad for dinner. I mean, it's ah. it's that meaty. It's almost like a, a main course. It's delicious. And of course, if you if if you like butter and if you like parsley and and mustard and ham together, I mean, those are wonderful flavors. So. And parsley is very very good for you, by the way. Just a little bit has a lot of magnesium and a lot of minerals and That's vitamins. Awesome. Very cool. So here's my recipe. Awesome. This is not my recipe. However, mm-hmm. I remember going to a restaurant in Chester, Connecticut called the Chart House. And apparently the Chart House was either a chain or it was so famous that the blue cheese dressing recipe made it all the way to the Food Network. Huh. And it did. And if you go to BCD, which is the initials for blue cheese dressing, bcd.2keto.com. That will bring you to the Food Network's page where they have the Chart House blue cheese dressing recipe. And it is my favorite. It has always been my favorite. You shouldn't go buy blue cheese dressing. You're, you're going to be spoiled after this. Let me okay. tell you. It's so good. And it's a combination of sour cream and mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. Three quarters of a cup of sour cream, one and one third cup of mayonnaise. Okay. But I actually like more sour cream than mayonnaise in my ratios, but you can experiment with this. A little bit of dry mustard, half a teaspoon to give it that little Mm. back of the throat kick, a half a teaspoon of black pepper, a half a teaspoon of salt, a third of a teaspoon of garlic powder. You can use fresh garlic too, but uh, I have found that garlic powder, a third of a teaspoon is perfect. Any more than that, it's like... Wow. Yeah, too much I, garlic. I find garlic the, powder and garlic, fresh garlic, are two totally different flavor profiles. Totally different flavor yeah. profiles. You're right. Yeah. Um, one teaspoon of Worcestershire sauce. Yeah. I tend to use a little more than that mm-hmm. because I love it. I use it a lot in everything. Yeah. And then six ounces of crumbled blue cheese. But here's the blue cheese tip, folks. You need to find Roquefort blue mm. cheese. It's the stinkiest. Yes. It's the king of cheeses. It is. Roquefort blue cheese. I have a cheese shop locally here. It's called Fromage. Yeah, which makes sense. Yeah. And they have, you know, 150, 200 kinds of cheese. It, it, it fills a chalkboard that completely covers their back wall. Nice. And Roquefort is the the best blue cheese. And there are a lot of them. There are smoked blue cheeses. Mm-hmm. There are Danish blue cheeses. There are French blue cheeses. There is Gorgonzola, which is an Italian blue cheese. I'm telling you, the best one Rock is Roquefort. And that's it's cave ripened, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I don't know yeah. what they do no, with it. It's, it's, it's magic. Awesome. <laughs> it's magic. They sacrifice no, unicorns. <laughs> yeah, you get in the center. It's so creamy and buttery like a brie, but it's got a little, mm, a little. I want to say a crunch to it, like a just a little, it's like a little uh, abrasive stuff yeah. in there that just <laughs> tastes so good. Awesome. And then the edges are more like your classic sort of firm 
blue cheese. Yeah. Uh, but you, this is what I use for this recipe, and it is the best. Nice. Oh, well, I'll definitely have to try that recipe. Yeah, I hope everybody else does too. Say, listen, if you've got a recipe or you've got an idea for a show or uh, anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute what we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website, twoketodudes.com or on our Facebook page, Two Keto Dudes. Awesome. And that's a show, Richard. Yeah, that was fun, Carl. A lot of fun. We hope we've uh, shed a little bit of light on the mystery that is ketones and ketosis. And uh, keto on. Keep calm and keto on. We'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Two Keto Dudes.